0: Thanks, Tamara. Um, G'day, my name's Matt. Uh, I came here when uh, before we had children, but it's nearly bedtime, and so uh, we've been going to the ten thirty service. Uh, pray with me as uh, we get stuck into God's word. We thank you, Father, for our time together this evening, and we ask that you would fill us with love for um, those who we know who are disciples of yours and that we would seek to serve them and see them uh, remain Christians all the days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John and Pauline, I don't know if you know this, John and Pauline have a connection to Bangladesh that's existed for the last 40 years. They knew people who were over here, I think, doing some missionary training and then went back there. And every year for the last 12 years, they've been doing trips across for two or three weeks and as I was talking with John earlier this week he was telling me that um, it was the vision that those there had for upskilling the disciples there um, and uh, seeing them equipped to share the gospel throughout Bangladesh that really captured John and Paulie's heart and they desired to go and be a part of that ministry that Uh, is difficult. Bangladesh is a difficult place to do ministry and and it's difficult for John and Pauline. John mentioned at the 10.30 service that it was a few weeks ago that he had a small mini heart attack, but he's been given the okay from the doctors, so hopefully if he's slower and just takes his time, he'll be coming back in one piece. Uh, But um, uh, they are tremendously encouraging to the believers over there in Bangladesh. Uh, John said that um, these people are ministering in hard circumstances and to have John and Pauline and the team, Danny and Martin, go across and to listen to them share about their ministry and to be able to say to them, good stuff, keep it up, is tremendously, tremendously encouraging for them. So, the team to Bangladesh are terrific examples of the kind of attitude towards other believers that Jesus is teaching his disciples here in Matthew 18. It's a kind of, uh, instead of inward-focused kind of love, it's an outward-focused kind of love. Um, And uh, our chapter begins with the disciples coming up to Jesus and asking him, Jesus, tell us, who's number one? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I'm sure that one of them is hoping that Jesus will say their name. Oh, look, it's a toughie, but it's got to be John, says Jesus. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says to them in verse 3, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus here in this whole chapter, if you have a skim, when you're at home, don't do it now. When you're at home, have a skim of the chapter and you'll see that the whole chapter is about the disciples' behavior and action, their attitudes and action towards other believers. So Jesus talks about um, causing another disciple to sin and it would be better if you were drowned instead of doing that. He talks about cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye if it causes you to sin. He talks about pointing out a fault of another uh, believer in Christ for their sake so that they would repent. He talks about Uh, forgiveness and forgiving one another. So, the whole chapter is about uh, disciples' behavior towards other disciples, their attitudes and actions. And our our, uh, few verses kind of form the crux, the very heart of the whole chapter. Now, If you were reading carefully, you would have noticed that there's something missing from our reading, and it's verse 11. If you have a look in your Bible and keep it open, because you need to make sure that what I'm saying is what the Bible's saying, there is no verse 11. It goes from 10 to 12. Now, I work as a primary school teacher, and I can tell you with certainty that should not happen. 11 follows 10, not 12. So, what's going on here? Well, this is a brief aside, but it's important. When the King James Version of the Bible was written in about uh, 1600 or so, the manuscripts of the New Testament that they had at the time included a sentence from Luke chapter 19. And the sentence was, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And that was, they called it, verse 11. Since the writing of the King James Version, better and older manuscripts have been found, which don't include that little line from Luke chapter 19. And so scholars are fairly certain that at some point along the line in the tradition of copying down from one manuscript to another, someone who was copying Matthew and Luke decided that they needed to be more similar and so inserted this little sentence from Luke chapter 19. That's what scholars uh, suggest has happened. And so by missing out verse 11 we actually have a closer and a better translation of Matthew's gospel than we would have if we're reading the King James Version. So we can thank God for that and we don't need to worry about uh, things being changed or missed in the Bible. So that's verse 11. That's one of two tricky little bits in our passage. The big question that Jesus is uh, answering here in our section is, why should we value other disciples of Christ? He's uh, been instructing, he's instructing his disciples about how they should value other people and he gives three reasons. The first reason is in verse 10. The first reason is their destiny. We should value other disciples of Jesus Christ because of their destiny. Verse 10 is, see that you don't that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, the little ones are disciples, Christians. They're not children, regular Christians. If we have a look at verse 3 again, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so Jesus is saying, entry to the kingdom of heaven... Is uh, based on childlikeness in one sense. If we go down to verse six, Jesus makes it a bit more explicit. Hopefully, we'll come up on the next slide. Or yeah, that's oh, go back on. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, Jesus says, "If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea." So Jesus makes it explicit here that the little ones that he's talking about are Christians, you and me. If you're a Christian here tonight, consider yourself a little one. And so when Jesus is talking to his disciples and telling them to care for little ones, he's talking about disciples caring for other disciples. This brings us to our second tricky bit tonight, the angels in verse 10. I don't know if you caught that, but it's kind of different. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. As I was uh, reading for this, there are three kind of three schools of thought surrounding this. Number one, uh, we this passage is talking about guardian angels. There's a one-for-one guardian angel for every Christian. The second school of thought is that, uh, as the Bible attests to, there are angels that uh, serve believers. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 talks about that. And so Jesus here is referring to the angels that serve believers. The third school of thought is that angels here uh, means the spirits of Christians after they die. And so after they die, the spirits of Christians go to be with the Father in heaven. That's the third school of thought. I'm reluctant to... um, subscribe to the first school about the guardian angels because that would significantly change how we live the Christian life. And for that to be the case, then we should probably have more about it in the Bible, but we don't. And so, I'm reluctant to think that Jesus here is talking about guardian angels. Uh, I'm reluctant to think Jesus is talking about angels generally uh, because in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13, the angels there are described as servants sent to minister to serve uh, believers, Christians. And so if they're sent to serve, then why are they in the Father's presence? I don't know. I'm I'm reluctant to believe that one. I'm more convinced by the third uh, school of thought that angels here is talking about the spirits of Christians after they die. In Acts chapter 12, there's a story that uses the word angels in a similar way, where Peter's in jail and an angel leads him out of jail and he turns up at the house of uh, some disciples and he knocks on the door and a woman comes to the door and she says, uh, she runs back and says, it's Peter, it's Peter. And everyone says, no, it must be his angel. Peter, you know, must have died or something because he's clearly can't be knocking at the door. He was in jail the last we heard. And so there the word angel is kind of used like... Um, Peter's spirit. Because in Acts chapter 12, the person knocking at the door, presumably the angel, sounds like Peter. And it doesn't make, uh, like, there's no evidence in the Bible that if there were guardian angels, that they ought to sound like the people they're guarding. So, third school of thought, the angels here, Jesus is talking about, uh, are the spirits of Christians after they die. And their destiny is to be with the Father. The Christian will go to be with the Father when they die. And so Jesus says, you've got to look after them. Don't despise them. Despise means to look down on, to disregard, to undervalue, to see someone as worthless or not worthy of your time. Jesus says, don't look at other disciples like that, but value them because their destiny and ours is to be in the presence of the Father. Think of yourself driving to church, you might have done that, you know, 50 minutes an hour ago, you're driving to church, someone indicates for four seconds instead of five before moving into your lane, and you just get really bothered, and you go up really close behind them, and you tailgate them for a bit, and then you just get super angry, and so you go into the next lane, and you zoom in front of them, and you, you cut into their lane, and uh, you, you get on the brakes hard and things like that and you are just kind of you just really worked up about this person that didn't indicate for long enough before changing lanes and you pull into church and you're in the huff and then you see them pull into church behind you wouldn't understanding that you have a shared destiny kind of change the way you drove and that you would drive in a way that would mean that they could meet their destiny as well as you, that you wouldn't endanger their lives by tailgating or chopping and changing like a maniac. Knowing their destiny, knowing that it's your destiny as well, changes how we treat people. And how do we apply this? Well, very simply, we can pray uh, for other believers that their destiny would be ours. And uh, a friend, Neil who I used to pray with when uh, I was working with the Christian group at uni, we would pray together uh, nearly every week for the whole of um, one of the semesters, Uh, he taught me this nifty little phrase, it should come up on the screen, and it says, we pray for whomever, we're praying to the Father, we pray that they might be with us and with you in glory. So simple, it's just gold though. Praying for other believers, we're praying that they would stay believers, we're asking God that they would be with us, we're talking about uh, sharing our destiny, and with the Father in glory. Terrific. Easy prayer to pray, easily obeying Jesus' instructions here, to care for other disciples, not to look down on them or belittle them or treat them as worthless, but understanding that we have a shared destiny, we value them, and we do what we can, such as praying, to make sure that they reach that destiny as long with us. So the first reason give, Jesus gives for why we should uh, treat other disciples well, why we should value them and love them and care for them, is their destiny. It's a shared destiny. We're both on our way to the Father. So we should do what we can to make sure that they get there. The second reason Jesus gives is their shepherd in verses 12 and 13. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you'll notice that this parable is very similar but slightly different to the parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. As I said earlier, the context of our t- parable in Matthew chapter 18 here is Jesus' instruction to disciples about how to treat one another. As I said, scan at home, don't do it now, scan at home, and you'll see that the sections around our passage are about uh, caring for other disciples, telling them about their sin, forgiving them, uh, doing, making sure that you're not causing them to stumble. In Luke chapter 15, the context around the parable of the lost sheep there is more parables about lost things. So there's a parable about a lost coin and a parable about a lost son. And so that seems to indicate that the emphasis there and the point there is about uh, God's love for the lost. That's absolutely true. And if we had the little bit of from verse 11, then we would probably say that our passage is about that as well. But our passage is slightly different, Ours is about loving other believers, uh, other disciples of Jesus. Now, a hundred sheep is kind of like a small to medium-sized shepherding operation back in the ancient Near East. The shepherd would know all of his sheep by name, you know, Norman, Stephen, Phyllis, Jan, Nancy, and so on, and he would count them all at least once a day and make sure that he had them all. And, you know, he might have a Tom Hanks moment if one of them wanders away. Wilson! And he'll be cut up and want to find the lost sheep. But here, and this is another difference between our passage and the one in Luke, the sheep here isn't lost. The sheep has wandered away. And that seems significant given the two contexts of the two parables. Consider what the shepherd gives up to go find that stray sheep. I'm sure that being with 99 sheep is a bit safer than being out in the hills on your own. So he gives up some security and some safety and uh, goes and finds the one that's wandered off. And what, but what does the shepherd gain when he finds that sheep? Joy, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 he left behind. The Lord Jesus describes himself as a good shepherd in John chapter 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so, there are two things that we need to understand here. Firstly, if you're not a Christian here, then uh, I hope that you take away from this that you are loved by God. Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd and being a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep means that you are tremendously valued by God, so valued that he would send his son to die a shameful death so that you might become part of his family. That's how much he loves you that's the first thing secondly if you're a christian here tonight then the christians that you kind of don't like very much or don't really give much time to they're people for whom christ died they're people that god loves and values so that should change shouldn't it the way we think about them and the way we approach caring for them Coming up on the screen are a couple of pictures that uh, the White House put out amongst many from the end of President Obama's time in office. The first, the one on the top left, is a little kid patting the President's head like like a dog or I don't know what game they're playing, but um, they're playing some game right there in the Oval Office, right in front of the President's desk. And the one in the bottom right-hand corner, you can see someone's dressed up as Spider-Man webbing the president, uh, he's all stuck, stuck uh, to the doorway. Uh, and there are many more like this where the, uh, President Obama was having fun with little kids. Now, it doesn't increase their value or their worth that these children have spent time in the presence of President Obama. But it draws attention to it, doesn't it? It highlights how valuable these little children are. It highlights how important they are and uh, it highlights that because consider what he's giving up to do this to play spider-man games in the hallway he's running a country there's 200 and something million people depending on him doing his job well and he takes time to play with the little kids it highlights how worthwhile and how important they are and so as we consider uh, what we do with this, knowing that Christians alike all have the same good shepherd who has given his life for them, what do we do with that? Well, we've really got to evaluate how we think about other believers. We've, gr- If we thoughtlessly or deliberately neglect or push aside or walk the other way in the foyer when you see someone coming, then we should repent of that and we should change our thinking. We should consider our brothers and sisters valuable and important because they're someone for whom the Lord Jesus died. And we need to consider what we ought to give up to see them persevere in the faith. Is there is there someone we know who's struggling a bit who would benefit from a bit of time? And so instead of watching the cricket on your own, you invite the friend over and you watch the cricket together and you talk about what it's like as a Christian, how they're going. Maybe your thing is... Um, going to the beach, and so instead of going to the beach on your own um, or with your regular friends, you invite the the Christian, you know who's having a hard time at work, and so you invite them and you encourage them along. Understanding that our shepherd gave up his life for other believers means that we ought to give up something in order to care for those believers around us. Why should we care and value other Christians? Number one, we have a shared destiny. We're all on our way to glory with the Father. Number two, uh, our shepherd. He has given his life for us and for them. And so we care for our other uh, believers. Number three, the last one from verse 14, the Father's will. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now... This is a hard verse and it's hard to hear because I'm sure that we all know people who have once professed Christ, who have once been active in the church, uh, who have been um, serving and encouraging people who aren't anymore. I'm sure we all know people who have forsaken Christ, they've given him up, they've found something better. We are confident that for Christians, God works uh, to keep them, to preserve them. As uh, Christians, if we have a look at Philippians chapter one verse six, we 'll read there that Paul is talking to the Philippians, and he says of them that he 's confident that God who began a good work in them will carry it through to completion god doesn 't do half jobs he uh, He preserves uh, Christians, and so for people who we know who have professed faith and who are not anymore, then we can only say what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 15 verse 8, that these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The will of the Father is that no Christian, no, no one from his flock should perish. The word perish here means to ruin or destroy. And in the context of Matthew chapter 18, where uh, Jesus has talked about uh, hell and eternal punishment, then it's a serious business. Serious things are at stake. But the Father's will is that none of his little ones, none of his believers should perish. About 11 years ago now, I was in the army briefly for one year. And um, during our infantry training, we went out into the bush for a couple of weeks um, and did practice things using blank ammunition. And then we did a live fire week using real bullets. And that was... A lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we got very wet and dirty and pretty gross and we were just constantly cleaning weapons, but it was a lot of fun to go out and shoot them. Anyway, the whole... The end of the week, the big final thing, was a night attack uh, with about 12 blokes and eight would kind of go down this field just straight towards the imaginary enemy and then four would scoot over to the side and kind of shoot ahead of the advancing Eight. Um, It's pretty tricky, and you need to stick together. I was one of the four, and so our commander said, look, you guys get up into this position here, and then you shoot ahead of us, and when we get to here, move your fire further ahead so that you don't hit us, and then at the end, come and join us. It's like, sweet, awesome. And so we did that, and the... uh, at every point of movement, we needed to make sure that all four of us were together. And it wasn't just whoever was in charge's responsibility. It was everyone's responsibility. If you were third, in, third from the left, then you had to make sure that Jack was to your right and Steve and Phil were to your left. Because if someone strayed from the group, they could be in serious trouble. There were guys shooting machine guns and things uh, with real ammunition. Uh, and so it was important stuff that we stuck together and we went exactly where we were told to. So, it's Jesus here is talking to his disciples and uh, he's telling them, instructing them, working to change their attitude toward other believers, that they would uh, take responsibility and seek to please the Father and align themselves with the will of the Father and work towards making sure that none of these wandering sheep will perish what can we do well uh when and when should we do it well we should do it now over summer most home groups take a break don't they and so usually throughout the year if there was a sermon preached like this you kind of think that you know the home group leader would send out a few more texts that week or maybe make a few more phone calls or something to make sure that the group's going all right but home groups aren't meeting at the moment are they so who's looking out for the person who you know and maybe the home group leader doesn't, who's just having a hard time being a Christian and they've, uh, they've talked a lot about something else that's really capturing their imagination and their desires. What do you do about that? Well, you've got to take responsibility for them. It's the Father's will that no, uh, no believers, no sheep of his should be lost. And so we need to make sure that if we know someone who is kind of wandering away, that we do what we can to bring them back. And so send that text, have that phone call, have that coffee with that person that you can think of. And in doing so, it's not just kind of a token thing, but we're aligning ourselves with the will of the creator of the universe. That's a big thing, and that's a cool thing. John and Pauline and uh, Danny and Martin are doing a wonderful thing in going to Bangladesh to encourage the believers there, to give them some more skills in ministry, um, and and they're doing it because they love them, because they value them and they care for them. Jesus gives three reasons here why we should value and care for other disciples. We have a shared destiny. We're all going to the Father. We're all going to be in his presence when we uh, leave this world. And so we ought to do what we can to make sure that other believers will get there as well. Secondly, we are all people for whom Christ died. And so the people that we think of as slightly less important are tremendously important to God. And so they should be important to us as well. The third thing is the Father's will that no sheep should be lost. And so if we know someone who's wandering away, the implication from our passage tonight is that we would take responsibility to try and do what we can to bring them back into the fold. John and Pauline and Danny and Martin are tr- terrific examples of this, and uh, especially over summer, uh, while we're here and home groups are not meeting, then uh, it's a prime time to put Jesus' words here into action. So let me pray. Almighty Father, we thank you that uh, you have sent the Lord Jesus to die and to bring us into new life and to bring us into a relationship with you. We thank you uh, uh, for this new life and that it extends into eternity. And we pray for the Christians that we know that they would be with us and with you in glory when the Lord Jesus returns. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.